Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Today is a special episode of the Live Inspired Podcast. In light of September being Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, John is joined by Dennis Gillen, a man who speaks openly and authentically about this topic that affects us all. Dennis has committed his life to reducing the number of completed suicides and removing the stigma around mental health after losing two of his own brothers to suicide. John and Dennis's conversation will help us continue to break down that stigma around mental health and help us better care for ourselves, those we love, and those who are in the wake of suicide already. Don't miss this powerful episode. Dennis Gillen, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. John, thank you for having me, and I feel like I know you because I listen to all your podcasts. So oh. thanks for doing that. Well, don't don't judge me prematurely, man. I'm, I'm not the man you've heard, okay? I'm better than that guy. I doubt it. And I've taken you on a lot of road trips, so, John, uh, you owe me gas money, by the way. <laughs> hey, D- Dennis, your story came to my attention through several channels, a friend through Facebook, another one through LinkedIn, one of my colleagues at work. I've checked out your videos. I've researched the work you do. I am overwhelmed by it, and I cannot wait to share this message, your story, your heart, your goals with our audience today. So thanks for taking time with us. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For, for those who may be unfamiliar with the name Dennis Gillen, tell us a little bit about who you are and, and the work you're doing today. Sure. John, I wish I was talking to you about you know how I won three Super Bowls, but life worked out a little differently for me. And I'm, I'm finally at an advanced age following my passion, and my passion has reduced the number of completed suicides. Hmm. And the reason I'm doing that, it's a sad story. I, I didn't lose one brother to suicide. I lost two brothers to suicide. And um, yeah, my voice even cracks saying it, because sometimes yeah. I can't believe I have to, you know, that's me. I hear it coming out my own, you know, my own throat. Uh, and that's why I'm on this calling of sorts to, to help folks you know, we're going to want to go upstream a little bit and help folks who are dealing with some mental health issues to say it's okay to say I'm not okay and don't come down to where I live now in the suicide prevention world. Let's go upstream and help folks talk about this stuff because I do believe talk saves lives. Well, it's it's such an undercovered topic, and so uh, we we stiff-arm this and put it to the side, and we, we don't talk about this in our culture. I don't typically even talk about it on our podcast or in our own families, and yet we all are impacted by the very topic that you, you, you scream about and you raise attention around, and we're delighted that you're going to spend a little bit of your time celebrating your life, our lives, your brother's lives, and, and what it means for us going forward. So let, let's back up all the way to uh, what it was like for you growing up with those kids. I understand you're from a pretty large family yourself, Dennis. Tell, tell me sure. about growing up as a kid. Sure, John. It was you know an idyllic setting. I was in a suburban New York house with five kids, classic you know three bedrooms, five kids. You know, everybody was on top of each other, so we're always outside, and it was wonderful. I loved being part of a big family. There was always someone around, uh, either to play with or bug. You know, <laughs> the sibling rivalry. It all existed. It was all under one roof, and as in Valley Cottage, New York, just north of New York City, um, but it was just a great place to grow up. It was wonderful. Um, a lot of folks back then had a lot of kids. So in our little cul-de-sac, there was three houses. There were 16 kids between the three houses. Mm. Um, so there was always something to do. And it was, 
it was wonderful. I mean, memory is very selective. We only remember some of the good yeah. parts, but it was I just remember it being perfect. What what were your parents like? Oh, classic uh second generation Irish. Their their parents came over from Ireland. So they were born in Brooklyn. Uh like like I often thought, you know, they didn't know what they were doing raising kids and I had kids and I realized <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so it comes full circle. They were my father was a salesman in New York City and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. So we always had that support system and then um even though she was stay at home, we're always outside, so I don't think I ever saw her all day until dinner time. Um, but that's what they were doing. They were they were doing what everyone else was doing, trying to live the American dream, just one generation removed from you know coming from overseas. Yeah, I've, I've always thought parents get an awful lot smarter once our own children show up in our lives. Uh, a, a lot of the mistakes they seem to have made actually end up being the right step, and it's amazing that they were able to take it. Did, your brothers, talk about them for a little bit. As kids, what, what were they like? Sure. My older brother, Mark, and I'm in the middle, so there's five of us, Sheila, Mark, myself, Dennis, uh, Janice, and Matthew. My older brother, Mark, was the classic tinkerer, and I wish he would have stuck around for the computer age because he was always fixing stuff. In our garage, you know, he'd be fixing bicycles. He hooked up his 10-speed, his Schwinn Varsity. I remember this. He hooked it up so he could run a CB radio off the generator. Mm. I mean, that's how he worked. His mind was way ahead of himself. Um, People would drop off toasters, clocks for Mark to fix. Um, and, and that was really cool to watch. He, he just had that knack. And then my younger brother, Matthew, was just a classic little brother dork, always tagging along, pain in the butt, but we always loved having him. He would come down and try to wake us up. I stayed in a room with my brother, and we'd pretend we're sleeping, and Matt would try to pull our eyelids up and wake us up because he was ready to play, and we weren't ready to get up as teenagers. So there was like a seven-year difference between Matt and I. So yes. Mark and I were only 16 months, and then Matt came along a little later. Did... Mental illness, which clearly is going to shape your entire story and uh, and your brothers, was that ever something that you were aware of as being part of your family, part of your parents, part of your brothers? No, it's, it's, we didn't talk about it back then, and we, and we still don't talk about it very well now. That's why I think we're doing this podcast. Mark, I believe, suffered from depression. Um, I'm you know I'm not a psychiatrist, a psychologist. I'm just a guy who got hosed by two suicides. But looking back, he, there were some things he ran away. You know some lashing out and all this stuff, but he suffered from depression. Things weren't going his way, and, and in the end, you know, as I said, 9 out of 10 people who die by suicide have some form of mental illness. In the end, the depression won. Uh, it just won. So he died by suicide, gosh, when I was in college. I was a junior in college when that happened. I got one of those phone calls that just rocked my world. And, um, Why don't we talk, because I think it makes it so real, and it humanizes a statistic. Uh, talk about the phone ringing and, wh- and what's that like for a young man to uh, to pick up the phone and you're living the college life and, and then there's a family member or friend on the other end. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a Wednesday. I had two tests the next day, so I knew it was going to be a long day, John. I was like, wow, this is going to be a really long day. I just didn't realize how long it was going to be when that phone rang. It was my sister. I was at West Virginia University. My folks were in New York, so I'm about eight hours from home. At college, and my, it was my younger sister, Janice, saying, Dennis, you need to come home. And I said, no, I don't need to come home. I have two tests tomorrow. And she goes, no, you need to come home. Mark died in a car accident. So they didn't know what to tell me, John. Yeah. I hear my voice breaking a little bit. They didn't know how to convey that message. So you know, Mark died in a car, but it was no accident. The, the car never left the driveway. Mm. It never got out of park. So eventually I learned what really happened through a friend. And I called up my folks and said, I'm coming home. I get it. And I was kind of sad and mad at the same time. So... 
it was brutal. It was one of those phone calls, and it happens to everyone listening to this audience. You just chug it along, and all of a sudden, life just comes at you. How, you know, it's, it's hard for me to even form the questions. How, when you are the young kid that you are, and at that age, life is all about you, man. Yeah, and that's an age that's hard for us to grow out of, in, in, in fact. But life is really all about you, and it has to be at that young age. How does a young boy take the fact that his brother has died? Uh, not very well. Not very well. And I, you know, I'm 20 years old. I'm a junior in college. Uh, I'm living the dream. And I go back. This is what we did. And if I, if I had to call an audible in my life, I would have changed a couple things, And starting with Mark's death. I left that Wednesday night to go home, and I was back at school by Tuesday. Hmm. I didn't stay home a week. We were just going to go on. We are going to plot on. Everything's normal. I was back in school on that Wednesday, a week after I got the phone call. And I tried to mask the pain, and, and by masking the pain, I self-medicated. Yeah. I had access to counselors and all that stuff that these kids have at schools today, but I didn't. I didn't go see a competent counselor. I went and saw an incompetent bartender. <laughs> I started drinking a lot. Now... For your listeners, the drinking age was 18 at the time. No laws are broken, okay? I'm 20, but my grade point average and my blood alcohol level were on a collision course, and that's no way to handle a major stressful life event. Take it from a guy who knows. When you look back at not only what you did afterwards, but looking even before the accident, the suicide, the loss of your brother Mark, what regrets do you have? Like every... I think like every brother, when I say every brother, I could have been a better brother. Um, we were a little competitive. I was sort of a pain in the rear end. Um, I just could have been a better brother. There's like little things that bug me. Like when I went to college, Mark won in my room, and I remember I protested. I'm like, no, I'm coming back. And I should have said, no, I'm not going to be here. Take it. Mm. So there's little regrets like that. Not little. They're, they're kind of big in my mind, but I was like, darn it, what was I thinking? take the room. I'm not going to be here. But I wanted it when I came back for Thanksgiving. I wanted it when Christmas, you know. Yeah. I just, again, back to your point, I was very selfish at that age, thinking about me, me, me. And I, and I should have been thinking about the others around me. In any signs, you talked about how he ran away from home and how he was a, a bit challenging, but I, I didn't see any big red flags there. Looking back on it now with 2020 vision, any evidence that this thing might be coming your way as a family? There was, after the funeral, um, when people would come up to me, friends of Mark, and we were very different in the respect. Like he was the tinker. I was kind of like the little jock, would play sports and all that stuff. And people would come up to me afterwards. Great people. They, they meant no harm. They said, oh, man, I remember me and your brother used to, you know, do drugs together. We used to smoke pot. We did this and the other stuff. And I'm sitting there going, I don't know if that's helping me. Yeah. But it gave me some insight. Maybe he was dabbling in stuff that... He shouldn't have been dabbling in. But again, remember, he, let's give him grace, he's suffering from depression. He's trying to mask it just like I was afterwards. So he might have been self-medicating and trying to escape some of the, the pain that comes with a mental illness in some unhealthy ways. And that was revealed to me afterwards. I'm going, oh, crap. You yeah. know, like, wow. Didn't know that, but thanks for sharing. Dennis, su- you know, suicide blows up the family. How, how did mom and dad respond to this? I don't want to speak for them so much. Um, they're still alive, living in Wilmington, North Carolina. God bless them. It's one thing to be the brother. It's another thing to be the parent. Yeah. Um, we just didn't talk about it, John. We just, we just, you know, the, the pride got in the way, and we just were going to march on. I remember I got my report card, and it wasn't so good that semester, and I had to remind the folks, like, hey, remember yeah. what happened this semester? Yes. 
our world kind of blew up. And that's a great analogy. I often tell people, I said, what was that like? It's like, it was like everyone's sitting around the Thanksgiving table and like a hand grenade goes off. And then you, you all get up and someone's missing. <laughs> it's like, what just happened? We were just, we were just here. Um, so they say every 13 minutes someone dies by suicide, and every 14 minutes there's a bunch of people going, what happened? <laughs> so what happened, man? You, you start self-medicating. You start hanging out more with the bartender than the counselor. Your GPA matches your blood alcohol content. Kind of walk us through from that moment in your life and, and uh, take us forward. Sure. Amazingly, I graduated in four years and eight weeks. I took a summer session. I get out of there. I get out of West Virginia University, and I um, – end up in Carlisle, Pennsylvania at that time. And believe it or not, I, I convinced this woman to marry me. And i um, got a little house. I'm in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And I'm still drinking a lot. You know, you know, Thursday, Friday would roll around. I remember one time I uncorked a bottle of wine and I threw the cork out. And my wife says, what are you doing? I said, oh, we're finishing it. You know, I'm not putting the cork back in the bottle. Um, that's where I was. So I was you looked at me as a professional, you know, young man and yeah. doing everything right, but I'm still drinking a lot. And then it was a Monday, living in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, 11 years after Mark dies. And I'm coming up on this, well, this last week, the anniversary of this phone call. Uh, the phone rings, and it's it's the folks back home again saying, Matt is gone. Oh, gosh. Uh, Matt was living in Richmond, Virginia, and in a drunken stupor, remember, I'm drinking. I thought I was drinking at like an Olympic level. Matt was drinking at a pro level um, in a drunken stupor with access to lethal means. Um, Matt's gone. And I just remember saying, sitting there on the couch, and my wife wasn't home yet from work. I'm like, I remember repeating, I already did this. I already did this. Like, I thought I'd check that box. You know, like, it yes. can't happen again. So back to New York for another funeral. <laughs> When you get the second phone call that you've lost your kid brother, 11 years after you lost your older brother, where does your mind go? And uh, and then secondarily, for him, were there any glaring red flags that you're like, gosh, man, how did we miss this? Looking back on it, how did we miss it? Yeah, there were um, there were some serious red flags. The drinking was one of them. Um, he had moved to Florida at one point, then we had to relocate him to Richmond, Virginia. He was working for my father, and there, you know, there was. It didn't seem like he was happy. If you think, if you look back, he didn't look happy. He had been in a, you know, a car accident when he was in high school, so he had a rod in his leg. So he was in physical pain too. So you, you take the mental pain of losing an older brother, like he and I both did. Yeah. And Matt had a, you know, he broke his leg and his back so he had these rods and tins everywhere so he was in a physical pain as well so he just wasn't he just wasn't well and looking back I could see it I could see it um, but hindsight is twenty twenty. but we thought maybe we're all good and then you asked me where did I go after Matt died I went to a very dark place um, it was bad uh, I started for the first time in my life now I think I'm 31 I feel extremely vulnerable yeah. about death up until then I'm like Oh my gosh, you could die. Um, what you know, this isn't good. And I went dark. I mean, depression. That was a stressful life event. It threw me for a loop, and um, it wasn't good. It, I remember staying in bed. I was, I was awake when I should be sleeping. I was sleeping when I should be awake. I was very fortunate to work for a wonderful company that was. Um, had an employee assistance program, so I signed up for the counseling. They gave me as much time as I needed. They knew I was rocked, and I was rocked. 
uh, to the core, and it was it was kind of scary. Dennis, pe- people frequently ask me when tragedy strikes, what's the best way to to surround a family member or a neighbor or a friend? Like, how do they best show up for others? I'm curious, man. You are expert at this, unfortunately, but now we can learn through you. What were people doing either after the loss of your first brother or the second or another life event subsequently that you found actually, yeah, when they did this or they said that, it did make a difference? That was amazing. People just kept showing up. That's the when there's a death uh, by a suicide, I'm going to encourage your listeners to show up. There's a ministry of presence. You're going to sit there. People avoid people who say, I don't know what to say. Uh, what do I do? Just show up. I remember right after this happened, a good friend of mine, George Hatchard, George and Libby Hatchard lived behind us. And we're both young couples at the same time, uh, at the same stage in our life. They came over one day and said, we're going to a movie and you're coming with us. All right. And they needed to get me out of the house. And after the movie, it was Jim Carrey's Mask, which is a comedy, which is a good, you know, make me laugh a little bit. We sat on their porch. And I don't think I said two words. I don't think George said two words. But I just remember swinging in a swing. I just had to get out of the house. Yeah. Keep showing up. It's called the Ministry of Presence. You may not know what to say. When someone dies by cancer or heart attack, everybody shows up with these casseroles. But when someone dies by a suicide, nobody shows up with the casseroles. I'm going to encourage people to handle it the same way. Yeah. Handle it the same way. If it was a heart attack, you'd, you'd be all over them like a hobo on a ham sandwich. Do the same thing <laughs> with the suicide. Get in front of these people. That's a New York term. We'll need to, uh, in our show notes, we'll unpack what a hobo and a ham sandwich means. I'll have to look it up on Wikipedia. Yeah, kids don't know the word hobo anymore, but that's, you know, just, it's, get in front of these folks, not to be lost in the humor. I do like to laugh a little bit, and sometimes when in my presentation, we, there's some humor in there because it helps the message land, but get in front of these folks. Do not avoid them. And I just had to coach somebody on that locally where I live in South Carolina. I said, she goes, what do I do? I said, just go. Yeah. And she went, and she was happy she went. Man, I, you're uh, completely speaking my language. I, I appreciate you uh, y- you teaching us. You, um, you're you in a dark place, <laughs> super dark, rightly so. I don't know how you get out of bed, but you, uh, you apparently go to your brother's funeral, of course. W- what's going through your mind? What What are you thinking? What are you, what are you committing to do next? Uh it's, it's so weird you asked that question because it's like blur. I remember coming out of the funeral and hugging a friend. And, um, I mean, I got hammered the night before the funeral, and I woke up hungover, went to the funeral, I had a headache, I was crying. I was a mess. And I get back to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Now, I totally removed myself four hours away from all that. I remember laying in bed going, all right, Dennis, what are you going to do? Where do you go? You tried drinking after Mark. What are you going to do next? Yeah. And I, I did the exact opposite. I remember I had this conversation with God. I said, I don't care what you want. And my wife and I at the time were struggling with fertility a little bit. We wanted to have a baby, and it wasn't working out. I said, God, I don't care what you want. Here's what I want. Mm. I want a baby, and if we if we get pregnant, I'll never drink again. And I don't count days that you could do it on the Internet. I'm about to give a presentation today, and it's part of my presentation. But today, I'm 8,409 days sober. We got pregnant. And a deal's a deal. And I haven't had a drink since. When did you find out that you were having a baby? About, seriously, about a month after Matthew died. And this, this story, you can hear my voice cracking. I was in Richmond, Virginia, literally cleaning out Matthew's apartment. And my wife called up and said, hey, I'm ovulating. You do the temperature gauge and all that. <laughs> yes. she goes, Guess what? I'm like, oh, perfect. I'm four hours away. Bad timing, hon. Uh, but I ended up packing some stuff up with my sisters and got up there and who knows, but it was it was a really cool story because in July we're at a funeral 
And then somewhere around the end of August, early September, we're back at my parents' house. And we have to give them these coffee mugs that say, world's greatest grandparents. Mm. They, they open them up and like, what? I said, well, we got some good news. And that's, that's part of my message is, you know, there was some really, if you think about it, three months earlier was the darkest day of my life. I just walked behind the casket of a second brother to suicide. And three months later, I get some of the greatest news I've ever had in my life. So I'm sober 23 years, and my, my son will turn 23 in April. Uh, Martin, man, it's, it's been phenomenal. What's your brother's, I, what's your, uh, your son's name? Martin. He's named after my father, and then God threw me another bone and gave me Brendan. <laughs> so Martin and Brendan, but, and that's it. A deal's a deal. That was a deal. Now, this prayer I said to God wasn't very good. It, it was, I was mad, you know, but God can take it. We were, we were arguing at the time. Yeah. But a deal's a deal. And um, it was the best deal I ever made. You know, I, I, and I would imagine, a few of our listeners have made some deals with God or a higher power or whomever they may look up to or down at. Uh, and then we break that deal, even though we got what we were asking for in some regards. It's easy to make a deal. It's hard to live into it, I think. How have you, for 8,409 days plus, kept that deal? Well, I smoke a lot of crack. No, I'm kidding. That's a joke. Joke. No, 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 no. Sub- I'm sober as a judge. Right, the producers do like the throat slot. Like too, too much information, man. We got to yeah, take that off. Too much. Yeah, that'll go off. But here's how I did it. Um, uh, one day at a time, um, I went and saw a professional counselor for mental health issues. Uh, the deal was a deal. We got pregnant. At first, at first, John, I thought I had to avoid some people that, you know, I always would go out on benders with. But they got it. Your true friends come around. And then I realized I had a skill set that made me extremely popular among my peers. I was always a designated driver, and they loved it. They loved having me. I was more popular sober than I was when I was a drunk. I'd been to Notre Dame football games because of that skill. I get invited to concerts because of that skill. And I have fallen in love with sobriety. It is an option. I used to think when people didn't drink that they're missing out. Um, I just... That was my mindset, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful option, sobriety. I still like to go out. I don't judge. I mean, heck, if I point a finger at someone, three of them are pointing back at me. I'm not perfect. So I will go out, and I absolutely have fallen in love with, the, with this program of sobriety. Uh, the days, my only regret about the 8,409 days is it's not longer. Um, that's, that's my true regret is it's not 10,000 or 12,000. Um, maybe I could have done something with Mattermark. Who knows? But... It's it's not it's not a death sentence sobriety. It's absolutely wonderful. You your battle was with so many things, obviously, but including liquor. And it's a battle that you continue to fight. But it's a battle you're currently winning, which is remarkable. I'm, you have my admiration. We all are in battles, though, Dennis. What's something that you do daily to allow you to somehow win that day? Because I, I think what maybe you're doing, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, might be a, a tip or a tool that we can apply as we, we, we battle our own demons in life. So give, give us a couple things that you might do every day to, to add one more day to that length. Okay, that's a great question. I try to surround myself with positive people. Uh, if someone's downward spiraling, and I can, go, I can downward spiral with the best of them, I try to surround myself with positive people and positive things. John O'Leary, the reason I know about your podcast is because you, you interview positive people. That's why I, I listen to that in the car. I have to keep myself up. I, I know I have to prop myself up. So I do stuff like that. Men, men need men. 
I'm, gonna, I'm involved with a small group, and these guys have got me through thick and thin. Uh, we meet every Friday morning you know, when I can make it, uh, and, and I miss it. Uh, when, I, when, I, when, when I go one or two weeks and I can't make it, I, I totally miss it. There's a, you need hope and social connection. So these guys give me hope, and that, that, that little group gives me social connection. And it's just stay out there. When, when people, when I got really bummed out with Matthew, I, I was starting to withdraw. And that's one of the, you know, the signs and symptoms of someone that's we're losing touch with, yeah. pulling back. Try to avoid that urge. Try to put yourself out there. Try to go to the party even when you don't feel like it. Um, and if your listeners are listening to something, they may be thinking about themselves or someone else, force someone to go. I remember people calling me up, you know, I'll go back to that story. Hey, we're going to a movie and you're coming. I didn't yeah. have a choice. I was going, get in the car. And um, off we went. So that's what I try to do. And then uh, it gets easier, believe it or not. It does get easier. Telling the story gets it's still hard, but every day uh, we move from alcohol is a lot easier. And every day uh, hanging out with good friends and positive people, it, it just makes it better. Dennis, I know you are on the the bottom of this river in some regards, having dealt with two, two in some regards, quote, successful suicide attempts, the loss of your brothers, man. And yet your work centers around upstream. You, you don't want to talk about the problem itself. You want to talk about the root of the problem and how we can proclaim this more clearly, more loudly, and how we can embrace this so that so we don't have to deal with these challenges downstream later on. Talk to us a little bit about what, what's going on upstream and how we can embrace this individually in our families and in our communities. Great question, John. The upstream is mental health component. I mentioned that 90% of all completed suicides are, you know, someone has a some shape or form of mental health issue, often untreated, misdiagnosed, whatever. So let's go there. 90% of the folks have a mental health issue, so we need to be able to be comfortable talking about that. Again, if I, if I broke my leg or if I had an insulin pump, you guys would be fine. You'd know what's going on with me. Let's be comfortable talking about that. And here's the other statistic that comes with that mental health issue. One out of five seek treatment. So let's, let's flip that around to four to five, and hopefully some of them are listening. If you're not feeling well mentally, it's okay to go see somebody. One out of five is a horrible number, 20%. That means 80% aren't going to see uh, a counselor or a professional in this realm. I swear by counseling. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying all your problems go away. They just seem to be stacked up a little neater, uh, and it just helps me cope. Uh, so that's where we need to go, John. We need to be okay to say, listen, I'm not feeling so well, and I'm about to go speak to a group you know, of, of college men. I want yeah. them to be comfortable speaking about it because that's where I was when Mark died. I said, guys, it's okay to say I'm not okay, and that's when, that's when it really you find out who your true friends are. Dennis, in our, in our families, and I mean this plurally, but um, in our families, we've had cancer, and uh, we talk about it online. We have had fires, too, now. We've had all, Parkinson's disease. We've had all kinds of terrible disease and issues and, and ex explosions. We've also dealt with some of the more hidden challenges. And in our family, and in almost every other family that I'm aware of, we don't talk about it. We don't promote it. We don't go to Facebook with it. We don't go to Carrying Bridge. We don't wear wristbands. We, we quietly deal with it. You know, keep this in our, in our family. Why is that? And what do you think it is that we can do, not only in our macro family, but in our families, to almost embrace and celebrate this? Not to, not to be shunned, not to cover it up, but to uh, proclaim it. 
That's, that's a great great question. It's, it's amazing. You, know, you, you talked about the, the shunning, and the, the word that everyone uses is the stigma around mental health. Like it's the old analogy is it's it's a two skunk problem. You know, when my brother's died by suicide, it's a two skunk problem. You know, this woman calls up Animal Control and says, "I have a skunk in my basement." And the guy goes, "Here's what you do: you take some breadcrumbs and lead it to the door, and the skunk will go out." She calls back a half hour later. She says, "I did exactly what you told me to do. Guess what? Now I have two skunks in my basement." <laughs> so with suicide, the suicide death was one thing. Then the stigma that came with it. Mm. Mental health is one thing, and then there's a stigma that comes with it. It's a two skunk problem. Let's get rid of one of the skunks. Um, let's start talking about it. It's okay. I listen to, uh, she's an expert on TED Talk, Brene Brown. She mm. talks about vulnerability. And recently I went on Facebook, and I'm not a bigwig, and I, I was vulnerable. I talked about the last night I drank. I cannot believe the responses I got from that post. I was real. And I just want to encourage everybody, be real. You know, life isn't all Skittles and unicorns. <laughs> we all know that. We're getting to that point. And this is why when I speak at colleges, I have such faith in that group because my generation, we still have that pride and we hold things close. I'm trying to encourage this young group to talk about it, talk about it. And I did a talk at Furman University, and I brought up three students throughout the presentation, and they spoke about how they dealt with uh, their mental health issues, and each one of them was phenomenal. And you know this as a professional speaker. Never bring up somebody who's better than you. Each <laughs> one was better than me. They were awesome. And the kids in the audience responded. They clapped for them. They went nuts Absolutely. And it was just like this burden. You could see it was just lifted off these kids. And at first, I remember one kid saying, you want me to go on stage with you? I said, you don't have to. But if you want to, you can. He comes up there and he rocks it. He just rocks it. And it was incredible. So I think the minute... We let down our facade, and we just say, you know what, life is hard, and this is what I'm going through. You will be amazed. When I finally came out and t- started talking about my brothers and the debts, and I hid it for a while, I yeah. hid it for a long time. When I finally started talking about it, I am amazed, amazed at the, the deeper relationships I have with people and the people that have come out of the woodwork to tell me their story, and we all have them. Their story of sorrow. When we we share our joy, it's a double joy. When we share our sorrow, it's half a sorrow. Hmm. That's an old Swedish proverb. It took me 50 years to hear that, but it's so true. And we stink on ice at sharing our sorrows. We're terrible at it. We need to get better at it. You'd be amazed what happens the minute you just show you're vulnerable, and then people will go, you know what, me too. And it's 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 been a really uh, this healing process after sitting on my hands for close to 18, 20 years, my healing has accelerated the minute I said, hey, you know what, this is what yes. Man, so I'm, I'm curious. You you lost two brothers. You're hungover. You're looking over occasionally at the casket of your younger brother. Your mom and dad are mourning in one way or another. You're completely broken, completely hungover. And now here you are decades later looking back on that. As, as you look back at that experience and that sorrow, uh, at that indescribable pain, what what has surprised you most about the journey forward? Uh, the journey forward, one, I was surprised how low I got. <laughs> um, I wasn't ready for that, and, and some of your listeners will be can vouch for that. You're like, wow, this is really dark. Um, but there was a, a little microcosm of how good people are in a situation like that. I leave New York to drive to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, after the funeral, and I'm driving home. And I'm like, oh, my God. Then life starts coming back at you. Yeah. Um, 
it had rained a couple of days, and I'm sitting in the car, and this is a weird thought, but I'm sitting, sitting in the car going, oh, my gosh, when we get home, the lawn is going to be so high. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. You know, it's garbage night. You know, stuff like that starts coming back. And I pull in my driveway, and I have to pause. Cause this, it's one of those stories where, where people are good. They just want to know how to help. People want to help. They just don't know how. I pull in my driveway. Some neighbor mowed my lawn. They knew I was out of town. They knew it was high. They knew I was hurting. They mowed my lawn. Little things like that. Little things like that. If, if hey, listeners, if that doesn't get you emotional, you're tuning into the wrong podcast, and um, or you're tuning into the right one, but you need to hit repeat and listen to everything one more time. I'm uh, I'm wiping my cheeks. There must be something in both of my eyes right now, Dennis, because that that. That little story, it seems so little and insignificant. And yet here's this busted up boy coming in, wiped out after the loss of his second brother, worried about his grass of all things, and it's been taken care of. For, for me, part, part of my mission in life is to remind people that there are no little things. Like everything matters and taking care of your neighbor's grass is profound. And I think it's so cool that you shared that story with us. I will never forget it as long as I live. Uh, Unbelievable relief when I drove in the driveway, like, wow, somebody cares. Final question before we shift gears into the Live Inspired 7. When your ladies and gentlemen walk out of your audience, they walk away from your presence, what's one thing that you hope they do differently or better afterwards? I hope they feel comfortable talking about their struggles. And I have actually a story about that. A young man attended one of my talks, and I had to get – I think I had to – follow-up or something, and I was following up with this one person, and someone let me know that this guy opened up to his girlfriend about his struggles. And I, normally I don't get immediate feedback. People will stay after the presentation, tell me their stories real quiet. You know, If I do a Q&A, nobody wants to ask a question because we're still dealing with that stigma. But afterwards, they'll tell me a story. And this, this girl told me a story about this guy opening up to his girlfriend about his struggles. And I'm so glad that that conversation occurred because prior to that, he kept it to his, you know, close to his vest. And this young lady was thinking about, what is, what's going on with my boyfriend? Maybe it's me. She was thinking about all this other stuff. And he says, no, I'm struggling. And now their relationship is stronger. So he attended the talk. And then all of a sudden that night, literally that night, he felt comfortable saying what he was dealing with. And that's all I want people to walk away with. You know what? Somebody cares about you. Mm. Open up about what's going on in your life and tell them. And then you'll be amazed what happens. Dennis, thank you. And as as you know, because you, you are a listener and also a friend, we have every guest share with us uh, the answers to seven questions. We call them the Live Inspired Seven. So, brother, we're going to shift gears away from that lawn and away from your work and away from your brothers just for a moment, and we're going to talk about your life. So what, what is the best book that you've ever read? All right, because I listen to your podcast, I did go out and buy Victor Frankel's and search for meaning because a lot of people say that. I know, it's kind of annoying. I, I keep waiting for people to say on fire, and uh, no, it hasn't happened yet. I'm going to bring my mom back on, and she'll 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 talk about my book. And I want to say that too, Man Search for Meaning in your book, and uh, but I, I'm going to go back to the old book, Brother, the Bible. Um, I, I'm, uh, I'm really, that group I meet with on Friday, we're not biblical scholars, we're biblical neophytes, and every time I open it up, another story comes out. That just speaks to me. So that's the book right now that's that's speaking to me. And, you know, I, I think it was Kathleen Madigan, who's a St. Louis comedian. Yeah. Saying, she grew up Catholic. She said, we, you know, the Catholics don't read the Bible. We read the bulletin. Um, <laughs> right. 
so for me, this is kind of really new and cool, and it's there's some regret. I wish I would have dove into it years earlier, but this Bible study I'm in has been phenomenal. So that's that's the book. Awesome, man. Question number two: Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died. Maybe an uncle in the homeland of Ireland has shockingly died at 103, leaving you with millions. What would you do with that newfound wealth? That's a great question. I would take that newfound wealth, buy a Winnebago. It sounds selfish, but I don't want it for me, but I want to take the Winnebago and I want to do this talk for free anywhere I can. Um, I'm going anywhere. Anyone will listen. It could be four people. It could be 4,000 people. I'm buying that Winnebago, and I'm saying, you know, let's go spread the word, and I'm hitting the streets. That's what I would do with that money. And I would tell the people that host me, say, it's free. I got it. People need to hear it. You know, if I say I got it, it sounds okay. But when you're from New York and you say, I got it, it sounds, it. there you go, man. <laughs> and you do have it, so I appreciate you gotting it. All right, man, if your house caught fire and all living things are out, that's your family, your little ones, your your belong, your uh, your animals, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one physical item, something that really means something to you, what would you grab? Oh, sure. There's in, in, in the bottom of this credenza, there's all our photo albums. Um they're irreplaceable. Everything else in the house can go. The TV set, I can buy another one, or maybe I don't need another one. I'll just listen to John O'Leary podcast the rest of my life. I don't. All the other stuff can go, but I need those. I need those photo albums bad because I can't replace them. And on the way out, I grab the Mac because a lot of those those photos are digital as well. So anything photo related with the kids, I'm grabbing. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach, have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to visit with? Oh, you're going to make me cry on this one. I knew this question was coming, and I thought about it. It's, it's me, Matt, and Mark. Like something we should be doing today. You know, if if it wasn't for the, the way things turned out, I should be sitting on the beach with these guys right now. You know, maybe with their wives and kids and talking about life. And that would be that would be the ultimate dream. And it's going to happen one day um, when I see him again. But Matt, and Mark, and me, three beach chairs, looking at the ocean, feeling small like we are. So. What this is this is question four uh, point B I guess. What's the first thing you would say to your two brothers that uh, that you're no longer able to speak to on, on this side of eternity? What what would you say to Matt and Mark? First thing, Dude, dudes, I forgive you. <laughs> I don't know what the pain you were going through, and I do, I forgive you. I don't know what was going through your mind that on that particular day. And then the second thing was, I, I wish I was a better brother. Mm. What's the best advice that you have ever received? I think a good friend of mine saw you talk and said, Dennis, you got to check out this guy, John O'Leary. <laughs> um, that was really, honestly, you, you speak it all the time. And this guy called me up, and we're, you know, the New York skeptics and all of us, there's another friend from New York, goes, we've all sat through these presentations and they're, they're no good. He, comes, he calls me and goes, he goes, dude, you got to check this guy out. Uh, John O'Leary, he's the real deal. And John, you are, and I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, so that was some really good advice that I got recently, and that's how I found you. So let's go with that. I accept, and I'm humbled by it. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? And by the way, this question hits us all in different places, but you in particular, Dennis, you're in the middle of a storm, man. So what's the best adv- – what, what what advice would you tell your 20-year-old self? Wow, I'd like to be 20 uh, – I turned 20 October 12th, and October 26th, I lost my brother Mark. So I think I'd – tell myself, go home and, and be with Mark or, or just be a better brother. And then I, I wrote down here, don't drink, um, put the booze off. Again, I, I told you my early regret was that number wasn't higher. Yeah. 
there are some regrets that I, you know I went through some of my phase of my life in a blur, and uh, I needed to be focused. Mm. I think if I was focused, maybe I could help those guys. Man, it has been said, Dennis, that all great people, and I have the honor of speaking to one on the phone today, all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Sure, on my tombstone when I'm old and really old, like my 103-year-old uncle that died, I want to go that high. I just wanted to say, here lies Dennis Gillen. He really tried to be a good guy. Dennis Gillen, you succeeded in being a very good guy. You continue to live forward the legacy of Matthew and Mark. Your parents are extraordinarily proud of the little boy they raised, and I'm grateful to call you a friend. Well, John, I really appreciate what you do, and thank you for having me on today. Man, thank you for reminding us to go home and be a better brother and sister. I think it's advice that we all needed to hear. And take care of yourself, too. You, too. My friends, that is Dennis Gillen. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. That was a powerful episode. Join the Suicide Prevention Awareness Month conversation online with hashtag Suicide Prevention or hashtag Stigma Free. Get additional resources in the episode show notes. Share this episode with your friends and loved ones to invite them into the conversation too. And be sure to subscribe to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary so you never miss an episode.